Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Neurology. This podcast aims to explore the practicalities of therapeutic sequencing options in multiple sclerosis, MS. Two experts in MS, Dr. Ruth Dobson from the UK and Dr. Ida Smets from the Netherlands, discuss and address three key clinical aspects relating to individualised long-term treatment and care in active MS. When to consider high-efficacy disease-modifying therapies, DMTs, how to optimise a switch in DMT, and practical considerations surrounding the use of DMTs in women of childbearing age living with MS. The discussion is guided by pre-canvassed questions provided by healthcare professionals involved in the management of people living with MS. This activity is funded by an unrestricted independent medical educational grant from the healthcare business of Merck KGAA Darmstadt, Germany, and was led by USF Health and Touch IME. This Touch podcast is for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to this touching conversation. Uh, we will be talking today about individualizing long-term treatments and care in active MS, and especially on how therapeutic sequencing options are evolving to address unmet needs. So today I'm, um, I'm joined by Dr. Ruth Dobson, uh, who is a reader and consultant in the Preventive Neurology Unit uh, at Queen Mary University London in the UK. I'm Dr. Edith Smets. I'm a consultant neurologist working in the uh, MS Centre Erasmus, which is part of the Erasmus MC Hospital in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. As we all know, there are two um, overarching treatments approaches in for people with MS. So there is the possibility to start with the low efficacy drugs and then to escalate towards higher efficacy drugs. Or alternatively, you can immediately start with higher efficacy um, drugs. We know uh, that um, um, that uh, almost 90% of people present with relapses from disease onset and will be um will be uh, eligible for one of these two strategies. Um, We also know that uh, from extensive retrospective registry studies, that when uh, starting with high efficacy drugs, that that is um, more, um, that this treatment strategy is better at preventing disability in the long run. So these treatment strategies have not been compared um, in re- controlled randomized trials. So uh, we don't have this, this the highest standard of evidence uh, yet um, to, yeah, to prove the superiority of high efficacy treatment. But we have extensive retrospective data um, that um, each one of them independently shows that when you initiate high efficacy treatment, that you are more able or that you will be better at preventing disability in the long run, even when, when taking all the noise regarding um, uh, bi- uh, selection bias, uh, the difficulties with EDSS and measuring it long term into account. And so from these four um, four retrospective studies, they all show uh, that when you start with high efficacy um, versus escalation, high efficacy versus uh, medium efficacy, high efficacy versus escalation and induction versus escalation, that there is um, in the long run a difference, difference in at what rate uh, you accrue disability. Um, 
obviously high efficacy DMTs are not um, the best way forward for everyone and we need to take um, different factors into account uh, to balance the risk um, of side effects versus the, the efficacy needed in an individual um, uh, person with MS. Several factors play a role in this process, especially patient characteristics. Um, um, we named here age, sex, family planning, adherence, personal preference, but also disease characteristics are obviously important. Uh, we take into account comorbidities, um, such as people being recently diagnosed with a malignancy, um, side effects, um, and also the, the monitoring burden that goes with certain DMTs, and also the healthcare systems and reimbursements um, uh, possibilities in, in uh, vary across European countries. So that brings us to our first question. And um, what I would really like to discuss with Ruth is what factors should be discussed with people with MS to guide the choice of disease-modifying treatments. Thanks, Ida. And I think this is a really complicated question to answer, actually, because there's so many things to be taken into account. We have to, you know, all of our patients are individuals and you actually have to take that individual patient sitting in front of you in clinic and think about what, what might be right for them. And we've moved really quickly in the field of MS. We've moved from a, a situation where we've had the choice of one, one, two or three DMTs to really very wide, tra uh, really wide range of choice over just a few years. I think that in general, when I'm talking to my patients in clinic, first of all, I think about actually what's their attitude towards their MS? How active is their MS? Um, how have things been? And also, what, what do they think? Because some people have very strong views about whether they really want to go in very hard with very high efficacy therapies or actually whether they um, want to take maybe a more escalation-based approach and actually to judge what sits right with that patient first off because you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. You can't, you can't push patients to treatment options that aren't right for them. It's also thinking about, as you said, those individual patient characteristics. They have MS, they've just been diagnosed with MS potentially. You have some information about their disease, but actually, you know, what are their plans for the next few years? What's important to this patient? For a lot of patients, also the difference between having an ongoing oral therapy or an occasional infusion therapy or an induction therapy, actually thinking about how that might fit into their life, into their lifestyle, into everything else that's important with them. Because I think one of the really important things is that MS doesn't change who you are. It's something that you have to live with. It's something that we can't cure, but actually it needs to fit around what you're, you know, what's important to you to a certain degree. For some patients, actually, the idea of taking a treatment every day, an oral therapy, is they just don't want to do that. They want to be able to forget about the MS. But actually, for other people, there's reassurance in taking something every day. They know they can stop it. They know they can switch it. There's no concern about ongoing side effects. And that's very, very individual. So I think those factors have to be discussed and actually the practicalities of treatment. And alongside that, the treatment efficacy, you know, how good is this treatment going to be at actually keeping your MS under control? And we increasingly are understanding that actually getting MS under control quickly, monitoring, you know, changing treatments if there is breakthrough disease is really, really important and thinking through that with patients. And of course, family planning, the rest of their lives, you know, what what happens next as part of that conversation. So it ends up being an awful lot to cover. It's, there's a lot of facts to cover and it can't really all be done in a single appointment. So actually this is an iterative process with the patient. Do you collaborate with an MS nurse? How do you coordinate this initial stage? 
Yeah. So often when I'm seeing people, what happens is um, I will have information about how active their disease is, maybe based on the relapses they've had pre-diagnosis on their imaging, um, potentially on their CSF findings. So I'll have an idea about whether this is somebody that I think really does need highly active therapy from outset or whether this is somewhere, someone where there might be a bit more flexibility around approaches. And often what I'll do, because the number of treatments we have now is so overwhelming, is actually sort of present some general principles so around, you know, tablets versus infusions, um, monitoring burden, and often send give people two or three options to think about rather than the whole gamut of DMTs. We then have great MS nurses. They will make contact with the patient. Sometimes they'll meet them at that first appointment. Other times they'll follow up with them um, within a timely manner to actually go through that again once people have had the chance to think about things a little bit. But I think it's about giving people that time. Um, often, you know, if people have got very active MS, you may not, you may feel anxious about giving them lots and lots of time in the decision extending on for months, but actually spending a few weeks thinking about the decision to make a decision around a DMT that someone's going to stick with is better than rushing in, making a very snap judgment, and then sort of wanting to change your mind almost afterwards. So it's really, it's a team effort. And in your clinical experience, what prognostic factors uh, should guide treatment decisions? So I think this, again, comes down to the patient sitting in front of you. And I think this is where medicine becomes an art, not a science. There is a real you know, art in having this discussion and, and being comfortable with the uncertainty that actually there is no one factor that says this person is going to do very well or this person is going to do very badly. And so this is where clinical experience and building that op- over years, not just from MS doctors, but MS nurses, the wider MDT becomes very important, actually. And and thinking about that and thinking about that whole patient. In my experience, you know, people who have very rapid onset MS, who have sequential relapses tend to do worse. And again, this is backed up by, by large data efforts. The other thing is often if people have got a lot of spinal cord disease or brainstem disease, you know, in those very eloquent areas of the central nervous system, often the prognosis for those patients it uh, can be slightly less um, favourable, particularly in terms of walking or ambulation or limb, um, upper limb function. So again, those are the patients who, if they're having lots of spinal relapses, you want to stop them having relapses fairly quickly because you know that the impact of that in the long term is going to be um, detrimental both both to upper limbs and lower limbs. Um, in patients who've got very high lesion burden and often, you know, not often, fortunately, but we do see patients coming in who may have only had one or two relapses and they may seem fairly mild. But when you look at their MRI scans, they have a large burden of, of inflammatory disease that looks like it's been there for a long term, a long time. And again, those patients, you think, OK, you know, one more relapse may knock you off your perch. One more relapse really may bring quite a lot more to light. And I also think that um, where patients are are suffering cognitively, actually, that's something that we're probably not good enough about asking, but where people are are complaining that cognition is is affected sort of relatively early on. Actually, to me, clinically, that's a bit of a red flag to say, you know, we need, cognition's really important. We need to get you on active treatment and and start start managing this. Are there some general principles that should should be applied to the monitoring of people with MS after they've started a disease-modifying treatment? 
So I think there's two two aspects to this question. So there's first of all the safety aspect, and then secondary, there's or not secondary, it's equally important, but there's the disease activity aspect. And I think from the safety aspect, this is really well covered in the um, information that comes with disease-modifying therapies in terms of what are the, the mandatory safety monitoring requirements. And those are really essential. And also, if people are showing evidence of um, lack of safety or adverse events associated with disease-modifying therapy, then actually listening to those, picking up on those, and, and thinking about changing DMT in, re in response to them is really important. I think that in terms of the other the flip side of monitoring the disease activity, that's actually just as important, you know, tolerating somebody having breakthrough disease on a disease-modifying therapy, even if they're tolerant, even if they, it looks like it's safe for them, we now know that that actually is associated with worse outcomes in the longer term. So being responsive to people who are reporting relapses, um, building in regular MRI monitoring, and I think there's Magnum's guidance that's, that's coming out about how to monitor, how frequently to monitor, is actually really important because we do see that whilst DMTs may control relapses, you know, patients may feel well, actually if people are accruing more and more lesions, then that's probably a sign that this disease-modifying therapy isn't really quite as effective as you might want in that person. And again, having that, you know, having that discussion around, you know, these are the things that are important for safety, these are the things that are important to know if this disease-modifying therapy is working. And you know, making sure that patients understand why you're doing the tests that you're doing. Because I think sometimes we're not very good at explaining that as doctors. You know, this is why I'm doing this test. These blood tests are important because actually you may not notice um, some of the safety problems that we have with the disease-modifying therapies. They let us pick them up early so that we can make changes before they affect you in a sort of wider sense. It's actually really important to help people understand the importance of engaging with that monitoring. Because I think people find it easier to understand why they need the scans to see if the disease is active, but the safety is equally important. And that is true for the entire trajectory, obviously, through the uh, when you cancel DMTs, that people need to understand why uh, you recommend something, why you recommend specific therapy and why the monitoring is necessary. Yeah, so I think that's it. And I think, you know, one of one of the one of the challenges sometimes with some of the DMTs is that people can feel like the monitoring is a burden, but actually it's a really important part of having that that therapy. Um, so that brings us to the second part of our conversation. Um, and we will now uh, dig a bit deeper into uh, switching DMTs and how to sequence them um, in people with MS. As we know, there are different um, interpretations or different views on what should be a disease breakthrough. And there are the two most important associations uh, in Europe and the United States have tried to define it. Uh, but this is obviously a guideline and does not always uh, correspond to the decisions we make in clinical practice. But the European Multiple Sclerosis Treatment Consensus um, uh, group um, has defined disease breakthrough as having three or more new lesions and one relapse or two or more lesions in the last six to 12 months. Um, and um, they also recommend uh, that after initiating a high efficacy DMT, that a uh, brain MRI should be performed at least yearly. So in the American Academy of Neurology, uh, so disease breakthrough is defined by having one or more relapse, two or more new MRI lesions, and having increased disability in the last 12 months. Um, and they also specifically touch upon natalizumab. When you discontinue natalizumab, people should know the risk of having a 
of having rebound disease activity, especially within the first six months after stopping this treatment. Um, so um, these are obviously guidelines and practice, as we know, is much more complex than what is uh, outlined here on this slide. So it requires a lot of judgments, uh, both from the uh, consultant as from the patient, um, to which um, factors should be weighed more than others. Um, we know that in the real world that people switch um, uh, treatments a lot. And so there was this big observational study from Italy, uh, including more than um, 2,900 people with MS. And we saw that um, the first three years after starting a treatment, almost half of the people uh, stopped or switched their therapy. And that's in the majority of the people, this was due to inefficacy. And um, the risk is obviously the risk of switching um, due to inefficacy is higher um, in, in drugs with uh, uh, lower efficacy, such as, for example, uh, dimethyl fumarate. And we see less switches after starting natalizumab and vingolimod. But still, uh, the numbers speak for itself. Um, what we start is not what people continue on for years. So that's why I wanted to discuss with you, uh, Ruth, in what situations would you consider uh, a vertical, ver vertical versus horizontal switching of disease-modifying treatments, and how do you prepare people for this? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, and I think it's I think it's challenging, and and in some ways it starts as people start a DMT actually to say, you know, this is our choice for now, this is where we're going. You've got to go into this thinking, you know, I will be on this DMT for a number of years. You know, you've got to think about the long term. But also be prepared to think about, you know, if it's not working, then this is what we might do. This is how we might change things. I think that um, vert sort of I'm going to talk about horizontal switching actually first of all, because I think almost sometimes vertical switching is is easier to to understand and to justify. So in terms of horizontal switching, this is often um, in people on platform or first line therapies, maybe where people aren't tolerating the therapy, where they've tried something, particularly where people are relatively potentially risk averse um, on those on those first line therapies and actually want to give another first line therapy a go. Um, but also you can have horizontal switching between um, higher efficacy therapies. You know, again, in people who are um, have highly active disease may have chosen um, highly active treatment or um, at, at an earlier stage, but also those who have already escalated to that point. And, you know, some, sometimes in those points, there, there, is no, there is no vertical switching to be done. You sort of can't switch any further up. And often that's to do with safety considerations. And I think we've seen this a lot recently in the context of COVID, thinking about risks of infections, and also um, with natalizumab and the concerns around JCV risk, where people may go onto it first off and then think about horizontal switching sort of after a period of time, 18 months, two years. So I think those are the kind of situations where you might think about the horizontal switching. In terms of vertical switching, obviously, this is most commonly escalation, and this is in response to disease breakthrough. So this is often where people have maybe had relapses or definitely where people have had relapses, but also where people have, you know, gradually increasing numbers of lesions on scans. And I think it's worth just reflecting on the fact that, that both in Europe and the US, the guidelines recommend um, switching up or escalating on the basis of MRI lesions, not just one, but two or three. And I think this is, you know, this is reasonable. It's based on the fact that you want to be really sure that, that the disease is breaking through and not that you're catching lesions either that have happened before the DMT has become fully efficacious or um, 
and sort of non-specific lesions developing. Yeah. And you also sometimes consider um, de-escalating uh, treatments? Yeah. So de- de-escalation, I think, is really a concept that's that's relatively new within the MS community. And I think it's come about because of the range of treatments that we now now have. You know, we haven't we haven't had this this problem, if you like, it's um, before because we haven't had the range of treatments to be able to consider this. But as concerns emerge around potentially people being on very immunosuppressive therapies for prolonged periods of time, then the concept of de-escalation, actually getting your disease under control and then then moving backwards, is is increasingly coming around. We really don't understand how to do this well. We don't understand who to do it in. I think as both clinicians and patients, there's there's often a concern around breakthrough disease, particularly if you've escalated up to a treatment because your MS was breaking through, to go backwards feels very counterintuitive. And it's really that very delicate balance between risks associated with treatment and the clear benefits of treatment on MS disease activity, and actually going back and re-evaluating that risk benefit periodically. Um, are there any safety issues that clinicians should consider when switching DMTs? Yeah, and again, this is something that's really become more and more important as our range of disease-modifying therapies has become um, wider and wider and the, the treatments work in different ways. I think the two main risks that um, we worry about or that I worry about when switching DMT are firstly stopping stopping a disease-modifying therapy and actually having the MS disease activity breaking through. And we see this particularly with the... Um, immunosequestering treatments. So we see it where the treatment is stopped and then the disease reactivates within sort of two, three, four months. That has to be balanced against the risk of um, the carryover risk of safety effects. If you have different disease modifying therapies that affect the immune system in different ways, if you have an overlap between those treatments, you've potentially got sort of dual effect in, from different angles on your immune system. So there's a concern about people being very immunosuppressed. And some disease-modifying therapies are more reversible than others. So if, you have, if you're sort of doing, using an irreversible disease-modifying therapy and you've got something else um, or the effects of something else still there, you can end up with somebody who's very immunosuppressed for a long time and inadvertently cause harm to that patient. So it's really challenging. It's a real balance. We don't always know how to do it best. We are still learning around this. I think over the past five years, we've become much better at switching, particularly with our um, immunosequestering treatments. So particularly understanding about balancing washout versus new treatment and how to risk mitigate that. But there's still a lot to learn around that. One of the more, definitely most difficult treatments to switch is the artist using one receptors, especially uh, if um, you at a certain point, want to stop them in people that uh, have been stable for several years. Is that something you have a, a specific uh, approach to? Or? It's, it's also one of my least least favorite stop sort of stop switches thing, and it, it's something that you know becomes particularly relevant around pregnancy actually because these drugs are contraindicated in pregnancy. Um, so actually, my my first approach is to try and avoid that problem. So if somebody's thinking about pregnancy or, or something like that, then actually to avoid avoid often use it, using those drugs to avoid the problem with switching because it is so it can be so tricky. I think that um, increasingly this is where sort of de-escalation or actually moving down down the the DMT pathway can be useful if people want to come off come off disease modifying therapy. 
um, or de-escalate so that you have some cover, but you're not immunosuppressing people sort of with dual therapies. But I think it's, a, it's an area where practice is evolving and we have to learn from each other as a neurological community. Yeah, definitely. So uh, that brings us to the third uh, and final uh, topic of this touching conversation. And that is uh, Ruth's favorite topic uh, on how to support uh, female people with MS through um, the family planning and beyond, especially when they're considering um, this to start or continue disease-modifying treatments. Um, we know that there are, the current guidelines are not sufficient to um, uh, or very vague on this critical time period. So we have the recommendations of the European Consensus Group, uh, which mainly uh, state that interferons and catrimer acetate are approved and safe, that for people with highly active disease, that um, there, sh there should be an open discussion about uh, considering to postpone uh, pregnancy, and that indeed in people that are highly active and need to need are in need of a, uh, an MS therapy, that natalizumab is actually a good option and it can be continued until week 32 of pregnancy. That are the most specific guidelines that are available at the moment. We have also the recommendations from the American Academy, which are vague and just uh, overall um, advice to balance the uh, risk of disease activity versus the risk um, of DMTs for uh, using DMTs with all their unknowns during pregnancy. Um, we have some real-world data on um, DMT exposure, which are mainly very um, extensive for glatrimer acetate and interferon beta, uh, which we already use now for several uh, decades in people with MS. And we, we have uh, all, all the data coming from the retrocyst show that there are no adverse events or no negative pregnancy outcomes uh, for these two uh, compounds. Um, and that also there is no rebound risk and um, that um, um, also during breastfeeding, they are more or less uh, considered safe. Um, the second, the drug for which we have, um, the, uh, also a lot of evidence is natalizumab. Um, and, uh, we know that, uh, it's probably a safe drug for it to use when, uh, people with MS are exposed to it during the first trimester. Uh, the only downside of using this drug during pregnancy is that we know that when, that newborns have some hematological, uh, abnormalities, um, and that there is obviously this re rebound risk um, that is not uh, well characterized um, so that we, we know it's there, but we don't know how long we can postpone uh, intervals um, in people, female people with MS um, that are, are giving birth. Um, and then the third and also which is progressively becoming more relevant drug to um, consider is ofatumumab. It's one of the anti-CD20. We don't have a lot of data for anti-CD20, for ofatumumab itself yet, but anti-CD20 uh, is a drug that is probably uh, also safe during first trimester exposure. And the downside, again, are the newborns. And if this drug is, giving, is given very uh, during the pregnancy itself, we know that it can be associated with um, reduced B-cell counts in neonates, which obviously interferes with vaccination responses. The absolute no-go during pregnancy and also um, during breastfeeding are things in one phosphate receptor mod modulators, which are known uh, to increase risk of congenital abnormalities and which are also associated with rebound disease activity. So um, that's why we definitely need to discuss um, 
what considerations need to be taken into account for female people with MS or of childbearing age and thinking about starting a DMT? And does it matter for you, uh, Ruth, whether they have uh, already a very timeline or a fixed plan uh, in the near future? Or is just the fact that they are of childbearing age already sufficient uh, to um, discuss this with them and to also take this into account when you guide them about DMTs? Yeah, thanks. That's a really big, big question. So I'm going to break it down a little bit. So I think the first thing, um, when you're thinking about people, somebody who's maybe starting a DMT newly, so in, in that conversation, what I would tend to do is say, you know, to actually bring the topic up proactively and say, is this something you're thinking about in the near future? Is this something that you might be wanting to think about in the next five, 10 years? So actually sort of put put a, a bit of a time scale on it and say, is it, is it something soon? Is it something... That, that might be there in the future. Because really actually that can help to guide guide treatment options as well. Because approaches might be very different if somebody says, you know what, I want to get pregnant in the next six months or I was trying to get pregnant before I was even diagnosed versus someone who says, yes, but but not for a few years. So I think that that's a really useful piece of information. And, and it's being really clear with your patients that plans change, that we don't know what the future is, but it just helps to bear it in mind when you're thinking about treatments. Um, and often this is something that people have thought about a little bit and it, it's just sort of trying to focus, focus, focus those thoughts a little bit more. I think that um, where it is something that people are thinking about in the near future, first off, to cover that, um, then it's talking about which DMTs might be available that you can either continue during pregnancy or use up to the time of conception and then pause during pregnancy. Because we know that in general, MS tends to be... Um, slightly less active during pregnancy. We also know that where people have been using immunosequestering treatments or have had very highly active MS, that actually it may break through during pregnancy. So it's different approaches. If somebody's got, you know, has come with one relapse, they've got a scan that's got a couple of lesions, their MS doesn't look particularly active. That's a very different approach from somebody who's had three or four sort of really nasty um, relapses during a year, has got an MRI that's full of gadolinium enhancing lesions, lots of cord involvement. And I, I wouldn't approach those two patients the same. Um, you know, and somebody who's got relatively mild disease, you'd think about treatments that maybe could be stopped or suspended during pregnancy. If someone's trying to conceive at that point, you may say, well, let, let's not start something now. We know that there's a therapeutic lag. We know that for some treatments, it takes a few months for them to reach full efficacy. So you may say, well, let, let's revisit the question around treatment in six to nine months. But if you're trying to conceive, then, you know, you may want to do that without exposing yourself to treatment. In somebody with very active disease, then obviously natalizumab, as you said, has got one of the biggest bodies of evidence behind its use in pregnancy. But actually the other monoclonals are not that far behind, particularly when you think about class effects. So with the anti-CD20 agents, for example, there's a wealth of experience outside of neurology for use around pregnancy and even during pregnancy in people with, for example, autoimmune renal disease, um, where it has to be given during pregnancy in order to preserve kidney function. So we actually know quite well what some of the risks and benefits of those are and having that discussion with people and saying, these, these, these are the options. This is what we know. And it's a really rapidly evolving field. So, so actually, you know, being honest about what, what you don't know, what you want to look up, what you want to sort of discuss at a next appointment. In terms of somebody who's already on treatment, really, it's thinking about their current treatment approach. Is that something that can be continued to conception? Is this something that needs to be switched before they start trying to conceive? Um, because it's ideal to 
aim for a period of disease stability prior to pregnancy. We know that um, one of the biggest associations with postpartum relapse is actually pre-pregnancy relapses. So trying to get somebody's disease controlled. But it's really important also to bear in mind that um, for women, sometimes time isn't on their side. And actually, you can wait for things to be perfect, and that may deny them a pregnancy, um, particularly people who are in their mid to late 30s. So actually, you know, it, it is an iterative discussion. Are there also some non-pharmacological advices that you um, share with your with your patients during um, clinics? Yeah, so I think that... Um, Sometimes patients come in sort of having having heard that MS gets better during pregnancy, that you'll feel wonderful, everything will be great. And then sometimes feel quite cheated because that doesn't always happen. Um, sometimes people don't feel great and it's not always the MS. It can be it can be other aspects as well. Pregnancy is, is very different between different people. Um, so actually, in, you know, engaging with midwifery services, physiotherapy, sort of pelvic floor exercises, good bladder management, proactive management of spasticity and gait problems, because your biomechanics change during pregnancy. And actually, if somebody's got mild gait pregnant problems during pregnancy, they can be really accentuated with sort of ligament laxity um, with as the baby grows spasticity may get worse so actually bringing in sort of physiotherapy rehabilitation specialists to really think about the person as a whole and remembering that not everything is ms and not everything is pregnancy that you know it actually takes a bit of thought sometimes to tease out why somebody may not be feeling so great but being proactive about these things is often better than being very reactive and when people have given birth, when do you see them back for the first time? How do you, uh, how are you present during this period? Yeah, so this actually starts during pregnancy. So the, the discussion about the postpartum period starts really during pregnancy. And so this is a conversation I'd probably have in the mid-pregnancy. So when somebody's around sort of 20, 20 to 25 weeks, start thinking about, are you planning, are you planning breastfeeding? You know, what are your thoughts around that? Um, being really honest that whatever plans you have might change and that's fine. Um, you know, thinking about if you have a relapse, what would you want to do? And thinking through, you know, approaches to disease modifying therapies. So some people are very clear that they're not planning to breastfeed or they're only planning to breastfeed for a short period of time. That, that's a decision that they've taken. And then it's thinking about reintroducing disease modifying therapy sort of at that point. Other people may be planning to breastfeed for a longer time or may, you know, um, may not want to start disease-modifying therapy immediately in order to sort of really focus on breastfeeding. And so with those people, you know, thinking through what are the um, effects of breastfeeding on relapse risk, we know that breastfeeding appears to reduce relapse risk slightly. But also for people who've had very active disease previously, thinking about um, are there disease-modifying therapies that are compatible with breastfeeding? And um, certainly the, the platform injectable disease-modifying therapies can be used in breastfeeding. But also with the monoclonal antibodies, there's increasing evidence that they pass into breast milk really in very small amounts. And so these are potentially safe for use in breastfeeding on an individual patient basis where this is discussed with those patients. And different patients have different attitudes towards that as well. But I think it's starting the conversation early and then it's keeping that conversation going. So often... Um, often not myself, actually one of our MS nurses will, will touch base with the patient really quite soon after they give birth, sort of within the first two, three weeks, not to talk about treatment, but often just to see how they're going and to say, you know, how are things? How's breastfeeding going? How are you feeling? How's the baby? All, all of those really important things so that, that that conversation line is open because 
definitely have had a number of patients who've had a clear plan that's then changed dramatically in that postpartum period, which is fine. It's just being available, being responsive, listening and making sure you're doing what's right for that patient at that time and not making people feel like they've, they've made their decision and they can't change their mind. So thank you, Ruth, for sharing all your insights on this uh, very important uh, topic uh, in DMT management. So I'm sure that um, myself and all the people who are in the audience will uh, use all these tips and uh, considerations when guiding people uh, in clinical practice. And I'd also like to thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure to cover the topic. Um, Brilliant to talk with you, Dr. Smets. Thank you both. And thanks for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on MS on Touch Neurology at www.touchneurology.com.